When the copyright of Mein Kampf expired at the beginning of 2016, the Institute of Contemporary History in Munich published a new critical edition of the text, which seeks to place this most notorious of books in its historical context. The initial print run of 4,000 copies sold out within days. To discuss Mein Kampf and this new critical edition, we're joined by Michael Umbach, Professor of Modern History at the University of Nottingham, and Neil Greger, Professor of Modern European History at the University of Southampton. Welcome. At first, can we give listeners some idea of Mein Kampf, what it's like, what it tells us? I think the key word here is it's a hybrid text. Uh, it tries to do several things simultaneously, and therein lies the interest, but therein also lies the challenge for us as the readers. It... Um, First of all, Hitler is trying to explain why it is that he went into politics, what his formative experiences were, what made him the politician and the man of conviction that he sees himself as being. Uh, he's seeking to advance his cause as the natural leader of the far right in Germany at a point at which the far right was still fragmented and divided. Uh, he's trying to distance himself as well from the other parties on the right, the more conventional nationalist parties, the, the bourgeois politicians, as, as, as he would describe it, and to set himself up, I suppose, as embodying a new kind of politics. So much of the tone is correspondingly sarcastic, and it's directed at the, these other politicians. And interwoven with that, then, he's giving an account of German history, particularly German history of the 19th and 20th centuries, He's giving his version of why Germany was drawn into the First World War, why she lost it, and of course then what he thinks Germany needs to do to, to revive herself and, and, and restore her, her greatness. So those are the broad thrusts, and it moves across those themes backwards and forwards. Um, at the same time, I think we should point out that it's very hybrid in terms of the different kinds of languages that it uses and, and draws upon. So it it mobilises a range of nationalist, colonialist, racist, militarist, anti-Semitic arguments drawn from a, a wide variety of sources, and it moves backwards and forwards across these, um, paragraph by paragraph and even within paragraph. So it's very hard to kind of settle on a particular tone and register and to, to tune into that, if you like, for us as the modern reader. Uh, so what, what, what holds it together as a text, I think, is the is the loose set of biological metaphors, the sense that the nation is a body, that the body is under attack by disease, by parasite, by illness, and that it needs to eradicate those diseases if it is going to become restored again. I think it's a, a really unusual book. Uh, the late 19th century in Germany is a period where political parties in the modern sense form and you see a proliferation of uh, party political manifestos and, and other documents seeking to define new ideologies, new movements. But Hitler's text is very, very different. It starts on this intensely personal note. It almost reads like an adventure story, a narrative that draws us into the process. So this signals Hitler's at the center of this, as Neil was saying, but it's not just about a personality cult. It's about showing that character and that intuition really matter and they define politics. It's not a series of logical deductions from an abstract set of goals. It's not a manifesto in that sense. It's a novel um, that invites us to feel our way gradually into Hitler's political thinking through that emphasis on his personality. 
Of course, a lot of the text isn't original at all. It draws very widely on on other political thought of the time. Hitler wrote it while he was imprisoned at Landsberg. And we know that he read very widely. He referred to that period slightly sarcastically as his university education. Um, But it's not just a joke. He's also trying to establish, in a sense, the, the, the basis, the foundations of his political thinking in mainstream political culture of his period and indeed of earlier periods. So a lot of it is grounding it in references to the Bible, to Homer, to a number of classical texts of the early modern as well as the modern period. So he's trying to come across as someone who's very serious and who's able to see a very broad picture which ranges across economics and history and geography and art and aesthetics are very important in that text. But it's it's tied together by this emphasis of his personal coming of age and becoming aware of the particular way in which we need to look at the world to arrive at the conclusions that he's trying to persuade us of. Does Mein Kampf work as propaganda? Is, is that what it was intended as? It's highly unusual, of course, for a dictator to write um, a political biography and political manifesto before he actually comes to power, uh, and then not disown it later. Uh, there were slight changes to later editions, but the book keeps getting republished. There are 12 and a half million copies, thousands of different editions before the end of the Third Reich. It's circulating extremely widely in Germany. But I think it's a, it's a symbolic object uh, that constitutes its importance. It's not really an example of hate speech is also not very effective at as a political rallying call in the narrow sense of that word. Um, as you say, that, that, that's really done uh, in speeches, that's done through new media, through the radio and through film. Uh, this is a different thing. This is something that you would put, put on a bookshelf uh, to browse at your own leisure. The emphasis, I think, is, is in appealing to an individual reader rather than a mass audience that you whip up into a hysterical frenzy. And that explains why there are all these learned references. It's, it's the book that you read in an armchair and its principal aim is really making these right-wing ideologies acceptable and and making them appeal to a broad bourgeois audience. When first released, Mein Kampf sold something like 12 and a half million copies. Was it actually widely read or was it something that people just had on their bookshelves? Well, it's one of the great myths, isn't it, that nobody read Mein Kampf. And I think there's a sense in which that's also true, that most of those 12 million copies probably weren't read cover to cover. But we, we've known for some time that um, many of the sections of Mein Kampf started out as sections of essays in the Völkerschrift of Orbachter, so they were published in slightly different form and then put together as sections of the book, not so, so dissimilar to the way in which Dickens' novels were originally published, for example. And the, the media culture back then is different. We also know that many of Hitler's opponents read this book and discussed it and tried to draw to the attention of their readers the dangers that they saw were in it. So there are lots of commentaries written in the 20s and early 30s by churchmen, by trade unionists, and so on. And so as as, as Mikan says, it doesn't have to be the case that everybody read it from cover to cover. It's perfectly imaginable to think of people sitting down, reading a chapter or dipping into it or becoming familiar with its contents by reading one or two articles in the Völkerschrift Urbachter. And in that sense, the, the basic set of ideas that it embodies, the basic set of commitments, the basic set of emotional um, commitments to a certain kind of politics that, it, that it's seeking to communicate will, will I think, have come across to people. 
Now, can you tell us something about this new critical edition? Because the format is is rather unusual. Indeed, uh, the new edition uh, consists of two extremely large, heavy volumes bound in grey linen um, with thousands and thousands of footnotes. The text is is encircled by the notes. Uh, The text sits only on the right-hand side of each double page. Uh, Hitler's prose uh, takes up less than a quarter of the the space in the book, uh, and it's surrounded by footnotes serving different purposes. The notes on the right-hand side uh, detail changes that he made between different editions, while notes at the bottom and the left uh, uh, correct factual mistakes. But more importantly, perhaps, they reveal the sources that Hitler is drawing on. And they quite often reproduce related documents, so excerpts, say, from the correspondence that Hitler was conducting with authors whose ideas he drew upon, uh, but also, in, to some extent, documenting the influence that these ideas had on what other people were arguing and writing and publishing at the time. So when we talk about the contemporary reception of this, um, I mention it's it's a book that uh, tries to be a very learned document in many ways. That's part of its appeal, the proving the respectability of National Socialism. And it's interesting, perhaps, to, to see in those notes the, re- the reception that it had amongst German academic circles. So Karl Schmidt, for example, who was a, uh, a very renowned right-wing German law professor, organized a series of academic uh, conferences and colloquia around particular phrases from Mein Kampf. Uh, so each, each sentence would provide the title of an academic conference, and he organised a whole host of them. So that's the sort of thing that the footnotes document. Does it reveal anything striking? I think what it's very good at is is showing the ways in which the language that Hitler uses doesn't come from from nowhere, doesn't come from outside. Uh, They're very good at showing how Hitler is picking up and drawing on a very wide, disparate range of, of 19th, 20th century ideologies, um, which have their which have their roots decades before, and so its annotations show very clearly how, where Hitler uses a certain word or a certain figure of speech, that figure of speech might have been out there in the eighteen fifties or something, um, and that in a sense for for German readers the language was actually far more familiar, therefore, than we might like to assume. That I think is 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 really an ex- excellent aspect of what the the team has done. There are some very distinguished traditions of philological work in German academia going back decades, going back to the nineteenth century. Uh, painstaking work of marking texts up and exploring them, and showing how they work, if you like, showing how how they function rhetorically. And I think, by and large, this this edition has done a, a really superb job of of making the text. Not speak, that's not quite the right word. They're not trying to help Hitler speak, but they're showing how it works rhetorically, where its persuasiveness comes from and where its persuasiveness might have come from. For for readers at the time who have that kind of cultural knowledge, that baggage of of knowing the the, the repertoires of 19th century thought that we may have lost slightly. An assumption that Hitler shares with a lot of his contemporaries is that ideas have agency. So ideologies do things in the world. They have uh, the power to cause people to act 
in certain ways. And that's not unique to the far right. That's widely shared by liberals and indeed even socialists who frame the course of world history as a, as a conflict between ideas and ideologies. And that's why believing the right thing is vitally important to deciding the fate of individuals and of nations. So this German approach to conceptual history, what Germans call Begriffsgeschichte, really the history of, of words and concepts, which underpins this edition, that's, that's the work that they're trying to do to decode the language language to, 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 you know, make those terms legible to us, I think is very good in bringing that out. I think there's also a slight danger in that it obscures certain aspects of the text. It is in some ways a work of political thought and it does draw on that repertoire, but it's also something else. It's a, it's a very affective, emotional text that, that speaks to sentiment and to feeling. Um, and to some extent, it's indebted to other genres of writing. I mentioned before that it's a little bit like a novel, like an adventure story, or what the German, Germans call a Bildungsroman. It's a, a, a classic genre of, of 19th century literature, which is a story of a protagonist gradually uh, discovering their own individuality and their own character through various trials and tribulations in life. And, and perhaps that more emotional subtext gets a little bit lost um, in, in, in this very concise decoding of key political terms in the text in this edition. So is it emotion? I think that's right, and, 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 and that is really why the centrality of Hitler uh, in this book matters so much. It, it provides a, a bridge for an emotional identification uh, that sits alongside this learned apparatus, but I think um, simply by deciphering the origins of Hitler's language and indeed correcting the mistakes, the wrong statistics he uses, misleading allegations he makes, um, doesn't quite grapple with the, the, the core appeal of the text. I don't think we can entirely decontaminate it by simply correcting it or even by uncovering all its sources. Um, there's something else, there's a sort of charismatic appeal that has, has a lot to do with it having this intensely personal tone that the footnotes don't fully explain. And is there a contemporary resonance to Mein Kampf um, that this new critical edition reveals? Well, I, I, I think Mein Kampf has to be read as an intervention in the politics of its own age and only really makes sense if one reads it as something that is projecting itself into the mid-1920s. Um, that said, language like like the, the language that Mein Kampf carries is always dangerous and one can't be, be too kind of blasé or dismissive about the, the, the reach, the appeal of certain kinds of rhetoric, especially as, when, as, as Mein says, it's got such a strongly kind of powerful sense of the authenticity of its author's own experience that, that is what gives it its kind of its charge and its drive. Um, I think what I would caution against is drawing two straight, bold, direct lines between the far right of the 1920s and 1930s and any appeal a book like this might have for the, for the far right now. So to me, the, the far right in Germany now is not something which is best understood in terms of uh, neo-Nazi residues from, from the era back then, although there is that small scene still. I think it makes far more sense to think about the discontinuities in the far right and to think about the German far right political scene as embedded in something which is more generically European. So if we're looking at Pegida, it's, it's Islamophobic, it's hostile to immigration, it's hostile to refugees, there's a certain set of anxieties in there about globalisation, I think. 
the the resentments that that movement articulates are not fundamentally different to the resentments that we see in other populist right-wing movements in other countries. So I, I think there's a point at which one has to say that this is no longer particularly about German peculiarities, or that it's too easy to see this as a story which is about German peculiarities. I would agree with this, but political language is always about recycling. So what Hitler is doing in drawing on earlier registers of language, earlier political thinking, and earlier canonical text of Western civilization from Homer and the Bible forwards, um, of course, that's still happening today. So political language is always reinvented, but it, it gains some of its persuasiveness from grounding itself in, in, in previous examples. I don't think Mein Kampf will have any immediate direct effect as a text, but it is, of course, itself becoming an object of recycling. And I think the danger um, is not one of direct incitement to, to racial hatred. For that, it's, it's much too antiquated a text, too much a text of its time. It's not uh, helpful, in a sense, to frame this debate in terms of the prevention of hate speech. Um, but I think what it does potentially do is, uh, is offer a sort of historical trajectory for, for movements of the far right that some of these uh, movements in Germany now, and indeed in Europe more widely, are drawing on and are interested. And of course, in, in some ways, in a perverse sort of way, you can read the Third Reich as a success story. Hitler wasn't uh, a failed putschist of the uh, 1920s, but he did come to power uh, and he led Germany in, into a war that was in its early stages quite successful um, as, as far as the Germans are concerned. And I think that is the danger, the association of that text uh, with something that became a mainstream party and one of the major European powers, a very modern power, an economically very successful power, and then at least for a while a militarily very successful power, gives a certain cachet and authority. And if you're looking at the far right now, um, Neil just mentioned Pegida, um, that stands for patriotic Europeans against the Islamization of the Occident. We usually translate it in English of the West, but actually the German term is Abendland, uh, which means Occidental civilization. Uh, and that is very much linked to the idea of a, of a central European civilization. It's not about the West. It's a civilization that sits at the heart of Europe, uh, that strives on bringing together Eastern and Western European influences and, and molding them into a kind of civilizational core uh, against an Oriental other. Um, and that is a vision that I think is, is very very sensitive or builds on grounding itself in history. And I do fear that to some extent Mein Kampf can be part of that historical narrative. Mark and Umbach, Neil Greger, thank you very much.